So what's the deal with hell? <laughs> yeah, it worked, worked all the other, other times as well. Um, it's actually the title of the sermon. If, um, um, talking about hell can be rather intense, so I thought we'd lighten the mood a little bit and begin with some far side cartoons. Um, this first one is for all us coffee snobs. I love it, they all have coffee mugs in their hands and oh man, the coffee's cold, they've thought of everything. You know, nothing really worse than a cold Starbucks. Um, this next one is for all you who have to commute on 235. And it says, there's a special place in hell for homicidal maniacs, terrorists, and people who drive too slow in the fast lane. <laughs> Some of you are, are, are cringing right now. You know who you are. And this third one is just really funny. You know, there's, you know, you, you know all the till hell freezes over jokes, and then here we have, look, Sid, another snowball. I tell you, this place is slipping. So, so much for the hell jokes. So let's get to some questions. I've got some FAQs here, questions that people typically ask. And the first one is, is hell real? And you know, if it isn't, we need to go talk about something else. According to the Bible, hell is a real place. In the New Testament, uh, there are references, over 51 references to hell. So that probably means we need to pay attention to the place. Well, if hell is a real place, then the next question would be, where is hell? And there's kind of a couple theories on where hell is. One is called the three-story universe. This actually comes from pagan, and Greek pagan Roman and Greek mythology. It often gets confused with Christian teaching. Many times you'll hear this teaching actually in churches, but it isn't biblical. And it goes where heaven's like on the top, you know, like it's the penthouse, and then earth is kind of like middle-level management. And then, you know, kind of in the underworld or the netherworld, you know, you, you've got hell. And there's all kinds of, of films that have made tons of money talking about the underworld. Um, there's a real problem with that. We're just going to do a little exercise to, to show what the problem is. So if you were to walk up to the person on the street and say, where is hell, how might they respond? And, and just point, quick, without even thinking, where would they point? Everybody down? Yeah, yeah. Oh, quick, you're in Australia. Where's hell? Oops, doesn't quite work. So here's more the biblical worldview. And, and in the biblical worldview, we've got heaven is, is sort of uh, symbolized by a circle. And if, if we were able to pull it off, that circle should be just infinitely large. It should be just utterly huge without any boundaries because God's everywhere. And wherever God is, is there's God's kingdom. And wherever God's kingdom is, there's heaven, because heaven and the kingdom of God are, are roughly the same thing. So where is earth and all that? Well, earth is this dinky little speck somewhere there. Well, then the most logical thing is, why can't we see heaven? Well, that's because of the rebellion of our first parents, that we have literally been blinded by, by our sin. In other words, while heaven's all around us, while God is all around us, we're unfortunately unable to perceive that. But when Christ comes back and restores all things, then our eyes will be opened and we're going to be in for the best surprise of our lives. And we're going to go, oh my goodness, there he is. There he's been all along. Every now and then we'll get a little taste of that. But then at the great resurrection, when God comes back, it's going to be amazing. Well, if that's heaven and that's where earth is, where's hell? Well, the best way we can talk about it is it's outside of heaven. Well, if heaven is infinitely large, then where hell is is, well, it's way somewhere 
And, and it gives theologians headaches trying to figure out where. Well, here's a more practical question. How could such a loving God send people to hell? And very honest people ask that, both non-Christians and Christians. If we've got such a loving God, why would he torment people forever? Why would he send people to such a place of eternal torment? Well, as you start reading around the Bible, what you begin to see is it appears that God really doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. In fact, we're going to take a look at that in just a little while of what the Bible has to say in a little more detail. Here's another pressing question. What about people who've never heard of the gospel, who've never heard about the good news of Jesus? Um, what happens to them? Do they just get lined up on judgment day where God looks at one of them and goes, oh, you never heard? Bummer. You know. <laughs> Sorry to be you. You know. No, I don't think it works that way. Scripture says the Father is not willing for any of these to perish. In fact, if you read Romans 1, Paul seems to be saying that if you truly seek God, he'll make himself known to you. Unfortunately, Paul also observes that a whole lot of people don't seem to be interested in seeking God. But here's the point. God is not in the business of playing hide-and-go-seek. And that's really, really important. God is not looking for people to toss into hell. And so if somebody, regardless of where they are or when they lived, truly was seeking God, he would reveal himself to them. Now, let's get back to hell for a second. What is hell like? We all know all the kinds of, of, of stories we've heard, but let's, let's see what the Bible has to say. And let's start with someone who kind of should know, and that would be Jesus. And when Jesus talks about hell, most of the time he uses an interesting word called Gehenna. Now, where did that word come from? Gehenna is an Aramaic word. Now, where's, what's Aramaic? Aramaic is the language that Jesus and his disciples spoke. It's related to Hebrew, but it's a little bit different. Uh, if you're a language geek, it's kind of like Dutch is to German, very close, but still a separate language. Well, Gehenna, then, is the Aramaic word for the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom, uh, during the time of, of Old Testament Israel, was just south of the city of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnom was originally this beautiful, beautiful valley, this absolutely manicured garden with all these beautiful trees and this grass and its flowers, little trails here and there, beautiful place, and right in the middle was this beautiful, beautiful altar dedicated to the pagan god Moloch. And the Bible tells us that at least with King Ahaz and King Manasseh, what would they do on that altar? They would sacrifice children. They'd kill kids so that the crops would grow and that their uh, military conquests would be successful. Well, and this is, of course, totally not cool. And God sent several prophets to tell them so, and often they would kill the prophets too. Well, later, King Josiah, who was actually uh, somebody who, 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 whose heart was, 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 was deeply passionate for God, he destroyed this valley, and he clearly destroyed the altar as well, and he turned it into a place for burying criminals and burning garbage. And if we fast forward to the time of Jesus, the Valley of Hinnom was still the city dump for Jerusalem. And they called it Gehenna. And Gehenna is the word in the New Testament that whenever it shows up, in English Bibles we translate it hell. And what's going on in Gehenna? Well, there were constant fires not only from burning garbage, but also garbage would spontaneously combust as it would decompose. 
And because of these fires, and also from just the decomposing garbage itself, the place was really quite hot 24-7. And there were also lots of bugs there, as you would expect from decomposing garbage. There were worms, and there were cockroaches, and you name it, it was there. Beetles, you know, yuck. And they were eating their way through the garbage. And there were also wild animals scavenging, looking for things to eat. And whenever they eat it, they would do what animals do, and that would be they would gnash their teeth, chomp, chomp, chomp. Not a nice place. And Jesus constantly used Gehenna. Again, we would translate that as hell in an English Bible. Jesus would constantly use Gehenna, Jerusalem's city dump, as a metaphor for what it would be to spend an eternity without him. He would often add even the details of the city dump. He would talk about the eternal worm and the fire and the heat and the gnashing of teeth. And essentially what he was saying is, life without me is like living in eternity in Jerusalem's city dump, only a whole lot worse. Whoa, only a whole lot worse? How, can, how bad can it be? Well, according to Jesus, it can get a whole lot worse. Well, how did Jesus describe that? Well, he used parables to describe what a whole lot worse meant. And there are several parables where heaven is depicted as a place where God spends, where, where God's people spend an eternity in God's presence. Where heaven is a place where people live in eternal celebration. Kind of like what Pastor Mike often says, there ain't no party like a Jesus party. In contrast, those same parables often depict hell, that is Gehenna, as a place where people spend an eternity outside of God's eternal presence, away from the celebration, living in eternal misery. In one of those parables, Jesus actually uses the metaphor of a wedding banquet to make sense of heaven and hell. And I want to just dive into that parable for a little while. This is a parable that Jesus once told where he said that the kingdom of heaven was like the story of a king who threw this huge wedding banquet for his son. And when the banquet was ready, he sent out his servants to notify all those who were invited. But strangely enough, they all refused to come. Now, I don't know about you, but, for, you know, this is a little weird, I mean, wouldn't you think it would be a great honor if, if, if the king invited you to the banquet? I mean, if the head of state of your country said all expense paid tickets to fly to Washington, D.C. To, to attend this huge banquet, again, all expenses paid, including the hotel, you name it, including everybody gets outfitted with a free tuxedo or a dress, I might say, let me think about it, yes. That's a pretty big deal. So it's kind of weird that people are refusing. So what did the king do? He sent out some more servants to tell them, the banquet has been prepared, everything is ready, please come to the banquet. This king is begging, which by the way is very undignified. Kings don't beg, they ask once. But this king is humiliating himself by begging these people, please come to the banquet. What do the guests do? They continue to ignore, and others actually seize the messengers, insult them, and even kill them. Okay, let's just stop here. It's getting weirder and weirder. It's one thing to ignore the invitation from the king. It's quite another thing to abduct the king's messengers and kill them. That's kind of a suicidal behavior, actually. There's a couple words for that. If you kill the messengers of a king or a president, that's called treason or insurrection. It can often get you landed in the slammer or worse. 
And so naturally the king was furious, and so he sent out his army to put down these murderous rebels, and he burnt down their town for good measure. Again, it sounds a little drastic, but think about it for a second. You don't get to kill the king's messengers, the king's servants, without there being some kind of consequences. Well, after all that happened, the king, he looked at his messengers and he said, you know, the wedding banquet is still ready. And the guests that were originally invited, well, they clearly were not worthy of the honor. So now, go out to the street corners and invite absolutely everyone, no exceptions. Did you hear that? Invite absolutely everyone, no exceptions. The king wants everybody, no matter who they are, where they've been, or what they've done. They're all invited. And so the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad and like, the Bible says. And the banquet hall was packed to the gills with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing the proper clothes for the wedding. Friend, the king said, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes? The man had no excuse. Then the king said to his aides, bind that man's hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whoa, that sounds kind of harsh. What's up with that? Well, let's, let's get all geeky for just a moment and, and do a quick history lesson from the first century. It's a Cliff Clavin moment. As they say, it's a little known fact that in the first century wedding banquets, the hosts supplied the guests actually with their own wedding garments. Think about that. So if you went to a wedding banquet in first century Israel, the host supplied the tuxes and the dresses. You didn't get to choose what you were going to wear. That was up to the host. And yes, that cost the host a lot. So this guy coming in his own clothes was essentially thumbing his nose at the king. Basically, he was telling the king that the only way he'd come to the banquet was on his own terms. Now, this was an act of tremendous disrespect. And it's not surprising that the king had him tossed out of the party. Because this guy was never really in the party to begin with, at least not on the king's terms. So if this is a parable about heaven and hell, what can we learn from it? First of all, heaven is like this great big gigantic wedding banquet, a huge party where everyone is invited, regardless of who they are, where they've been, or what they've done. And that's really important to learn because I think a lot of us have grown up in churches where, where God was presented as this really angry dude who was looking to toss people out of heaven and looking to see, you know, literally to make hell crowded. But that is so not the heart of God, not at least the God of the Bible. It's quite the opposite. Our God is looking to make heaven crowded. Secondly, there are actually people who, strange but true, don't want to come to the party. That sounds really weird, but there are actually people who will refuse the invitation. And even stranger, when God persists with his invitation and even sends messengers to them to invite them again and again, please come to the party, they often will react violently. And if you look throughout history, God has sent people to others to tell them the good news about Jesus only to have them killed, to have them be martyred. And there have been regimes, governments, who have become so paranoid about the good news of Jesus, they've gone after the Christians who are, who are telling that good news and begun to persecute them. 
It seems that they have become so paranoid that these people, these governments, whoever they are, they become so terrified of heaven and the king of heaven that it feels like hell to them. Third, these parables also tell us that there are people who seem to be okay with heaven, but only on their own terms. They want a heaven of their own making. They want a heaven where all the right stuff is there, like Beverly Hills in the sky. They want a heaven where all the right people are there and none of the folks that they don't want to be around. They want a, they want a heaven where the God they like lives there. I don't know how many times I've heard something where someone will begin a sentence like, well, I just can't believe in a God who dot, 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 dot. And, you know, when I'm feeling snarky, I think, yeah, and I don't think God cares a whole lot. Fortunately, I keep my inside voice inside. <laughs> but how often do we want God on our own terms? We want, we want a God of our own image. But it apparently seems that that's what some people want out of heaven as well. It's like telling the king that he needs to wear a different suit and change the menu for the banquet. Folks, that ain't happening. So what happens to these people who don't want to go to the party? What happens to people who want the party only on their own terms? Well, very simply this. There's only one party in town, and if you don't like it, go make your own party. And that God calls hell. And Why is that? Because God just can't imagine why anybody wouldn't want to come to his party. Because from God's perspective, everything outside of his party is just sheer misery. A place of outer darkness, a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that is, folks, the last thing that God wants for his kids. Let's take a look at another parable. This is one that Jesus told that deals with the why of why people wouldn't want to go to heaven. We've had a little glimpse of the fact that there are people who don't seem to want to go to heaven. But now we'll take a look at the why. This is a familiar parable. It's often called the parable of the prodigal son. And let's do a quick walk through that parable. There is this wealthy farmer who has two sons, and the parable opens with the younger son demanding his part of the inheritance. Now, this is a huge insult to his father, but strangely enough, the father gives the inheritance to the younger son. At that point, the younger son heads off to another country and parties his brains out. But when times get tough and he runs out of money, the younger son winds up feeding pigs on somebody's hog farm. This was not a good situation for a young Jewish man. Pigs are definitely not kosher, and he has no business even coming anywhere near them, much less feeding them. Finally, the younger son comes to his senses and decides to go home. He knows that he's blown it as a son. So he decides to apply for a job of a lowly hired hand on his father's farm. He even has this nice little speech prepared. But when he gets within sight of the family farm, his father sees him and runs up to him. By the way, father running, wealthy farmer, wealthy landowner, yeah, they don't do that. Wealthy people in the time of Jesus didn't run. That was beneath them. That was humiliating. 
But this father is so moved with compassion, he doesn't care. And he just runs up to his son, and before his son can, can even get out his prepared speech, he just gives him a big old bear hug, commands his servants to put on the best robe that he's got, gives him the ring of authority, and then commands that there should be a big old honking banquet prepared in his son's honor. Meanwhile, out in the fields, the older son gets wind of this and becomes furious and refuses to come to the party. Now the father finds out that the son is standing outside and he leaves the party to come out and beg the older son to come into the party. By the way, this is also very undignified because a wealthy landowner like a king only asks once. And this guy's leaving the party to come out and beg that his older son would come back in. So how does the older son respond? With an angry torrent of bitterness, resentfulness, and unforgiveness. All these years, the older son says, I have slaved for you, and never once have you given me even a young goat for a banquet with my friends. And yet, when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you throw a banquet for him. Father gently responds, you have always been by me and you have always had everything that I have. We've had to celebrate. We have to celebrate for your brother was dead and now he's back to life. He was lost and now he's found. In this first parable, we learned that there were actually people who do not want to go to heaven. We even get a hint of why some people would refuse heaven. Here in this second parable, we get some more insight into why people might refuse heaven. Towards the end of the parable, we have this incredible scene of the older brother, the one who never caused any trouble, refusing to come into the party. And when the father leaves the party to beg him to join the party, this well-behaved older brother reveals what's been simmering on the inside all these years while he's been acting like the good son. And out comes spewing this ugly torrent of anger and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness that has just been waiting to boil over. And it turns out that all this simmering hostility on the inside has slowly turned this good son into something quite foul and nasty. Someone who would rather remain outside the party in his own misery than forgive his brother and celebrate with his father, his family, and neighbors that his younger brother, whom everybody thought was lost for good, has now been found. Think about that. According to the Bible, there are actually some people who would rather hold on to their resentments, their bitterness, their jealousy, their unforgiveness than let go of all that and join God in the heavenly party. I can't think of anything sadder. Trading heaven for your own misery, your own personal hell. How do people get that way? From this parable and other Bible passages, it seems that it's possible for people over time to literally create for themselves a hell on earth. That over time, some people just store up jealousies and broken desires and resentments and bitterness and unforgiveness to the point where they shut themselves off emotionally and spiritually from other people around them and most importantly from God. 
And as a result, their perspective on life, on good and evil, and even on God becomes so twisted, so distorted, so warped that heaven winds up looking like hell to them and God looks like the devil. And sadly, when it comes to eternity, these people wind up choosing hell over heaven. The Apostle Paul put it this way in his letter to the Romans, for the wages of sin is death. In other words, in a curious way, these people seem to work their way into hell. They start by making for themselves a literal hell on earth and carry it with them right into eternity. Well, what about the opposite? Can you work your way into heaven as well? Can you simply just adopt a bunch of positive attitudes and and, and just accumulate over that time and then get to heaven on on the backs of, of your good behavior? Well, here Paul says something very startling. He says, while people seem to over time work their way into hell, heaven, on on the other hand, turns out to be an absolutely free gift. Let me read the rest of of, of that sentence that Paul wrote. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. Let's go back to these two parables and see what this means. In the first one, the king winds up inviting everyone and anyone to the party. The good and the bad, as the Bible says, no matter who they are, where they've been, or what they've done. It seems like the king wants the party to be crowded, and he will go out of his way to make it happen. Or more to the point, God wants heaven to be crowded, and he will go out of his way to make it happen. That is our God. In the second parable, the wealthy farmer throws this huge party for his younger son, And then, strangely enough, actually leaves the party to beg his older son to come in from the outside. This father is someone who also goes out of his way to make sure that everyone is invited to the party, even his grumpy son. And this parable is telling us that we have a God who goes out of his way to make sure everyone is invited, to make sure everyone is invited, even grumpy religious people. We have a God who goes out of the way to make sure you are invited, no matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done. Because we have a God who would rather die than leave anyone out in the cold. And that's just what he did when the Romans nailed him to the cross. I don't know where you are in all this. Perhaps you've already been walking so closely with Jesus and are already experiencing a foretaste of heaven, you're already experiencing a part of the party, and you just can't wait for eternity. Or perhaps you're wrestling with some inner turmoil, some resentment, some broken desires, some jealousy, some bitterness, some unforgiveness, and you're starting to shut down emotionally and spiritually around to those around you and perhaps even to God. Well, I've got some good news for you. God's in the healing business. God's in the restoration business. God's in the forgiveness business. And there's nothing you've done that he can't forgive. And there's no relationship so broken that he can't put it back together. And there's no life so messed up that he can't mend it. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, 
no matter what you've done, no matter what you're wrestling with, there's a v, there is a VIP invitation waiting for you. So let go of all the stuff that's holding you back. Let go of all the stuff you're hanging on to so tightly. And come, come, join the party.